All right, Philippians chapter 2. So we continue in that. <clears throat> For some, this is the long awaited day. For a theological question um, that I put off in Sunday school. <laughs> I'm going to read 1 through 11 just to remind us of the context as we deal primarily with uh, 5 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that this was written for our instruction, uh, that we might endure, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, have hope. Because you are the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's recall for a moment that Philippi was a Roman colony. And as a result, was very much part of the Roman ethos. And part of what that meant was, well, pride, dominion, Taking dominion mattered. Being second best was wrong. You one had to be first. It was about uh, taking control of your circumstances, being on top, so to speak. We see reflections of this within our own culture, uh, particularly within a postmodern context, uh, but we see the rise of self-esteem. The, the biggest problem you can have, according to some people, is that you have low self-esteem. Our culture values self-assertiveness, that no one would walk on you. No one would take advantage of you. We see as well the will to power, that postmodern moral ethic that was given from Nietzsche, uh, that really what we're supposed to do is very similar to what the Romans did, and you are to gain power so that you are in control. 
That was the surrounding culture, and it is the surrounding culture for us. Uh, But Augustine was asked what the primary trait of a Christian was to be, and he responded with, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And so the question that Paul seems to be addressing here, which is one that Augustine would fully affirm, is what does it look like to humble myself? And so that is what we're going to look at this morning. And the first place that Paul goes is he says that humility imitates Jesus by not clinging to rights. Remember, Paul is making this point about gospel unity. He's talking about their participation or partnership in the gospel with himself as well as with one another. And he's been speaking about pride and humility... And he's going to do this by pointing them to Jesus. He starts here in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll note, if you paid attention, that what I just read there is slightly different from what I read a few moments ago. If you have an ESV... I would invite you to look at the footnote because I'm following the footnote. The reason I'm following the footnote is because, well, that follows the grammar and the the Greek far better than what, for some reason, they stuck in there. They're making an accurate theological point, but they're not making it in the right place based on what Paul says. Okay? Uh, I often speak of our union with Christ, but what is going on here is not directly tied to the union in Christ, but rather it is meant to see the show the same mindset that Christ had. Paul is enjoining them to have this mind among you. He talked about having the same mind. Well, what mind is that? This mind. Jesus' mind. That's the mind they were intended to have. Now, Martin Luther notes that first we must receive Jesus as the gift before we receive Him as our example. If, mere, if we merely follow the example of Jesus, oh, we're still ending up in the same wrong place that we don't want to end up. Following Jesus will not save you. We must put our faith in Christ first. We must trust Him to save us by His work First, And so we see Paul using this for an example, even though and behind the example is the reality of his work for our salvation. And so we must receive by faith his work for our salvation before we begin to follow him as our example. But let's note something that is, of course, obscured by English, one of the problems with English, That you, yourselves, is not singular, it's plural. In other words, it is meant to encompass the entire congregation to whom Paul is writing. Uh, There's not to be someone who's sort of excluded from this. It's meant to be something that all of them take part in. In other words, 
There is no true gospel partnership unless all are thinking and acting in this way. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind. Because what Paul is also saying is that there are no gospel dictatorships. Jesus is on the throne, and we're all his servants. Now, in many places, that's not the case. There are what pretend to be gospel dictatorships. But they're meant to be gospel partnerships. And if everyone is uh, playing by the same rules, so to speak, everyone is having the same mind, but there is one person who's not, you end up having a gospel dictatorship. You end up having uh, uh, spiritual abuse beginning to take place whether it's within a marriage or whether it's within the church, the one person who is not of the same mind begins to undermine the gospel partnership that God intends there to be. And so that would be need to be addressed. So keep that in mind as I say these things. Now, what was this mind that was in Christ Jesus? He says, first off, though he was in the form of God. The focus here seems to be on, on how Jesus appears to other people. Okay? We're going to see this word form again as we go throughout this passage. But please don't misunderstand form as if it meant Jesus wasn't really, fully, God. Okay. There, was, there was a congruence between who Jesus was intrinsically and how he appeared. Precisely because Jesus is fully God, if you had gone to heaven, you would have seen his glory. It would have been apparent to all who gazed upon him as well. You know, the angels did gaze upon as much as one can gaze upon Jesus with um, wings over their face from Isaiah 6. <laughs> but the reason they have to have the wings over their face is the outward glory of the eternal Son. And so the eternal Son is fully divine, and these these heavenly creatures were, were able to see that it, it, intrinsic glory as it manifested itself. And so, uh, this one who was fully God, Paul continues, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, this can be seen in a couple of ways, and sometimes it's translated in those various ways. One is uh, to be grasped after, to be robbed, to be stolen, as though somehow Jesus lacked something and then grabbed after it, which is not the case at all. The case really here is that Jesus didn't hold on to, cling to, this equality with God. You see, there's an incredible irony that Paul wants us to understand. Because how did we get in this mess in the first place? Why is it that we live in a sinful world? Why is it that each of us struggles with pride? Well, it is because of Adam and Eve. Adam, who grasped after undeserved glory, that empty glory that we see 
earlier in this passage that we talked about last week. That, and I want to emphasize that, empty, because we're going to get back to that word, too. Okay? Adam grasped after this undeserved glory, but Jesus lets go of his deserving glory in order to give us glory. So even here we see this glimpse into the glory of the gospel, the, the amazing and astounding grace of God. For we see in places like Romans 14, Christ did not please Himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon Me. And so we see Jesus letting go of glory. Grasping after glory or clinging to empty glory tends to create conflicts in marriages, in friendships, and in churches. I just always think of the ring of power and what it does to people. Everyone wants to grasp the ring of power. A golem is usually going, my precious, my precious. But when he doesn't have it and it's within his sight, you see him kind of almost morph from something that's semi-tranquil to the teeth come out. If you watch The Fellowship of the Ring, there's this scene uh, where they're in uh, Rivendell and he catches a glimpse of his old ring around the neck of Frodo. And he just wants to touch it. And Frodo, knowing the power of the ring, says no. And for a moment... This little hobbit turns into like almost a fanged, clawed beast ready to rip his nephew to shreds. Everyone wants power. But we see that Jesus didn't cling to power. Within the Church of Rome, I'm sure, uh, remember, Roman colony, citizenship, a big deal. Okay? Roman citizenship is a huge deal. You have so many more rights as a Roman citizen. And there were some people who brought that into the church thinking that I am a Roman citizen and you are not a Roman citizen and therefore I am privileged and above you and there are certain things that are below me. I'm sure that's part of what was going on within this tension in the church within Philippi. But not only that, but you have the reality of economic disparity that revealed itself within slavery. And it would be very tempting to continue that understanding of from the world outside of the church to inside of the church where slave owners are privileged and slaves are not. As opposed to recognizing that in Christ Jesus there is neither slave nor free. Equal access. Those, those things that matter out there don't matter in here. But when we make them matter, we create conflict. And so Paul is really kind of encouraging them not to use their power or prestige in order to bully others into submission or to avoid doing the dirty work. And so releasing our rights like Jesus preserves gospel partnership through gospel humility. So secondly, 
Humility imitates Jesus who became a nobody. And if you're looking at your notes, you might scratch your head. That's one of the things I changed. I also changed the third one, so have no fear. Humility imitates Jesus who became a nobody. You see, Jesus simply didn't, you know, just, he just didn't cling to his rights, but he did the exact opposite. Paul says he emptied himself. Now, some translations say he made himself nothing, but the, the verb here is from that same root that we see the, the prefix on empty glory. Emptiness. Controversy. The church, particularly in the last two centuries, has struggled with this, uh, coming up with what's known as the, the kenotic theory in order to avoid some uh, disagreements they had with scholastic theology and the liberalism. And they falsely believe, this view erroneously believes, that Jesus somehow gave up his, some of his attributes that Jesus could somehow cease to be God. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, no longer was God. That is a wrong understanding. Before we get there, however, let us note this. He emptied himself. Not he was emptied. This is not something that happened to him. This is something Jesus did. And Jesus did reflexively to himself. He is not passive in this process. This is something that Jesus chose to do. And part of the implication would be that we also are intended to choose to do so. This is the mind that Jesus had, emptying Himself. Therefore, have this same mind in yourself. Empty yourself. Paul is getting at. Jesus remains fully God precisely because God can't stop being God. We're to understand this in terms of the grammar of this text. This emptying of himself is explained in the participles that follow. Okay? Not with some theory that some theologians came up with, but let's stick to the text and see what the text says about this emptying. Put it this way, grammatically. The main verb in the sentence is, he emptied himself. And then there are a series of these things, participles, that explain what it meant. That Paul utilizes to explain what this emptying meant. But again, just to make sure I'm clear, as John Calvin noted, Christ indeed could not divest Himself of Godhead, but He kept it concealed for a time, that it might not be seen under the weakness of flesh. Which brings us to the first participle. By taking the form of a servant. And so we notice that He's gone from form of God, that's why I would say outwardly, you look at Him, you know He's God. But now, you look at him, and, well, during his incarnation, you saw servant or slave. There was no clue that he was the king. 
just as there was no clue that Strider, this ranger, that no one sort of trusted in the wilderness, was actually the king of Gondor. Yes, we watched the movie yesterday. But Gollum was in there already. But note that. He takes on the form of, and I think it's better translated, slave. Particularly within the context of the church of Philippi. Jesus becomes a slave. He becomes God incognito. As Luther has mentioned. He took on the form of a nobody. A mere possession. Who has no rights. He didn't, now catch that. Not only did he not cling to his prerogatives as God, but he became a person who had no rights. I'm reminded of the story of John Griffin Howard. Some of you might remember him. Back in the days of the Jim Crow laws of the South, he decided to do an experiment. He was from Texas, and so he took melanin treatments to make his skin darker. And when that didn't work, uh, in some, some spots he would use um, shoe polish, and he traveled throughout the South. He forsook his appearance as a white person in order to experience life in the South as a black person who had little to no rights. Jesus has done something similar to that. He's gone from privilege to now being a nobody, a nothing in the eyes of the world. We see why he did this in places like Mark 10 and Matthew 20 where it says that even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Paul is saying is that that statement encapsulizes the entire life of Jesus. Why is this important? It's precisely important because Roman citizens and the rich, the owners, likely thought that there were some types of service that were beneath them. But there's a reason we read from John 13. Jesus, who knew the glory He had with the Father and knew the glory He was about to go back to with the Father... Knowing that, took off his clothes, put on the towel, and did the work of the lowest slave in the household by washing feet. The feet of his disciples. He did. And so Jesus calls all, even our leadership, to take the role of servants, uh, not as, so to speak, privileged princes and princesses, Paul continues, in addition to taking the form of a servant, he says he was being, he was being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was born a man. He fully shared in our humanity. He didn't just appear to be a person. He actually was a human being. But however, contrary to much of the art long ago, there was no halo. There was no glow that marked him out as someone special. He did not have Brad Pitt looks that we could admire. 
Jesus is one who, as it says in Galatians, lived under the law. To kind of borrow from a song that gets part of it right, but not all of it right, Joan Osborne saying that he was one of us. And he was. Aside from sin, he had the same problems we had. And he looked just like one of us. An ordinary person. Not a special, set-apart person. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to ache. He knows what it's like to be rejected. If you're in middle school, that should be of comfort to you. Right? That was, that aside from dating was the period of the greatest rejection of my life. Oh, yeah, trying to find a call. That too sometimes. Um, but he knows rejection. He knows what it's like to be considered unimportant. He can identify with you when you experience those things. He also knows what it's like to do hard things. Jesus emptied Himself of glory in order to enrich us with God's grace and mercy. As we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, He who was rich made Himself poor, that He might make us rich. And so Jesus exercised, if we want to let's step back for a second and, and say, well, wait a minute, Jesus performed miracles. Yes, Jesus did perform miracles. But note, Jesus exercised his power. Okay, see, he still was omnipotent, all powerful. But he exercised his power for the interests of others and not his own. Note the difference between the temptation in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, Turn these stones into bread and eat. Jesus resisted the temptation. He did not utilize His power for His own interests. But what happened when they were out there with the 4,000 and then the 5,000, Jesus multiplied the bread and the loaves and fed others. He was concerned about other people. And we see that as well in the many healings that Jesus did. He exercised His power, but it was for the good of others and not simply for himself. And so making yourself the lowest person in the room, like Jesus did, is one of the things that preserves gospel humility. And so first, not clinging to rights, and second, becoming, in all essence, a nobody. Thirdly, humility imitates Jesus who obeyed until death for our salvation. You see, the fact that Jesus appeared as a man um, sounds like a great humiliation, particularly when you're God. But it goes deeper. Now we have another one of those regular verbs. He humbled himself. It wasn't enough to empty himself, but Jesus also humbled himself. He he lowered himself further. But note, again, this is active. It wasn't he was humbled. 
Okay, This is not something that happened to him against his will. It's not something that happened contrary to his expectations, but it's something that he specifically chose to do. So often our humiliations are not chosen, but Paul here invites us to choose the way of humility. Jesus is, in a sense, the incredible shrinking man. Not physically, not like some science fiction movie, but in terms of perceived importance. Though He is the Creator and Redeemer of of the entire world, He is a nobody. And He's humbled Himself. And again, the participle helps us to understand what it means by He humbled Himself. In this case, he humbled himself by becoming obedient until death is probably a better translation of that. In other words, it was not something that started with death, but was all of his life up to and including his death. In other words, we have to understand that humility means the Son of God obeyed. I... uh before I went on vacation this summer, I, I picked a couple books I thought would be encouraging for me. Um, I was feeling kind of worn out, wanted to get refreshed. And so I picked up my copy of Calvin's uh, um, A Guide to Christian Living. And I picked up Hugh Binning's book, Christian Love. I thought these would be encouraging. And everywhere I read in them, it kept saying, deny thyself, deny thyself, deny thyself. <laughs> Just as Augustine said, humility, 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 so Calvin and Binning were saying, self-denial, self-denial, self-denial. They want to, want to experience real Christian living? Self-denial, self-denial, self-denial. In this case, it was not simply a denial of his will, but also submitting to the will of someone else, precisely his father. Humility from this uh, statement here could be understood as a long, perfect obedience in the same direction as Messiah. And Jesus wasn't exempt. Key phrase, as Messiah. There is uh, another erroneous teaching, the eternal submission of the Son that's going around, meaning that that the Son, the eternal Son, has always uh, submitted to the Father. And I would say that on the testimony of Scripture, we would say that as Messiah, the incarnate Son submitted to the Father for our salvation. We've come across this before, and we've mentioned this particularly in the Gospel of John, but I thought it bore repeating again. Jesus was not exempt from obedience. He couldn't walk around, I can do what I want. I'm the Messiah. But rather, He was to align Himself with the Father's will, which included His death. And so we see in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It wasn't as though Jesus didn't want anything differently, but that Jesus submitted and obeyed the Father. 
at all times, up to and including his death. Now, of course, it was not a momentary obedience. It was an obedience that encompassed his whole life. But we see that Jesus obeyed for our salvation after Adam disobeyed for our ruin and destruction. Romans 5 is largely about that. But just, I'll throw out verse 19 for you. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So Adam disobeyed this one time and everyone was made a sinner. So by the one man's obedience, referring to Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So Christ's obedience brings us salvation. Our obedience does not, but His does. But it wasn't just any death. Paul clarifies and reminds us, even death on a cross, not death in hospice care, not death like I would like if I could choose my death in my sleep. But death on a cross, enduring the agony as well as the shame of the cross. Now the first record we have of the cross being used as a method of execution is the Phoenicians. It was adopted by the Greeks and then by the Romans. And within Rome, the empire, it was fit only for rebels, slaves, and criminals. Seneca, in writing about death, the execution upon a cross, said, uh, essentially, I'd rather choose suicide than go through that. Because it was a nasty bit of work. But what we see is that Paul here, I think, is caught up in the servant song of Isaiah 53. That there's a reason why he chose Christ as a slave, as the, that servant song, the suffering servant, who, as, we, as uh, we would see if we looked at verse 12 of 53, he poured out his soul to death. He emptied himself even in death. And so Jesus, who earned eternal life, endured death to give life to those who deserved death. And so really, this in many ways, I think, think ought to reframe our understanding of obedience. Have we compartmentalized our obedience? Have we said to God that there are certain things that, that we don't think we want to obey in? Whether it's our money or our marriage or sex. Are there places we've said, God, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want? Well, the Savior points us to willingly choosing to walk in obedience even in ways that we don't necessarily want to. But we recognize 
His death on the cross for us should motivate us with a love, a growing love and passion and desire to obey Him in all things. So our big idea this morning is that humility, or answering our big question, humility looks like forsaking power and privilege and demands on other people in order to walk in obedience to God. So our pride creates problems in terms of gospel unity and gospel partnership. Worse, it creates problems in our relationship with God. And so pride has a horizontal problem, and pride also creates a vertical problem. Okay. Jesus addresses both those dimensions through His emptying of Himself, through His humbling of Himself, for our salvation as well as as an example for how we are intended to live as people who go by His name. And so confess your pride. Confess your clinging to privilege. Receive His humility and and walk in humility by His grace. Uh, This looks like not demanding our rights, but rather becoming a servant to one another and obeying God even when it hurts. But this is the way of life. Let's pray. Father, I confess this is scary. As another has said, faith feels like dying. And it feels like dying because we give up control. And we are people who love to be in control. Help us to remember that we give our control up to Jesus who gave everything up to us first. We give up our control to Jesus who considers our interests and not simply His own because He's good. And so grant us sufficient grace to first receive the gift but also to walk in the gift. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.